Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. Hey, Founder Fam, before we dive into another incredible conversation, I want to share something really special with you. Whether you're just joining us or you've been following us since the beginning, you've been a critical part of our community working to change entrepreneurial education. I started Founder almost a decade ago with the mission to provide entrepreneurs access to the world's greatest business leaders. Our goal was to break down barriers to entrepreneurial education, and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond, and today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back, check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education, and our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interview to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in Founder Plus. So guys, please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's jump in. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey, Founder fam. Welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Today, we're chatting with David Lester, co-founder of Olipop, the soda that's actually good for you and is now stocked in over 7,000 grocers around the US. Now, we're going to be covering all things product R&D, marketing in a highly competitive industry, and really how to differentiate your product from the competition. Please welcome to the Founder Podcast, David Lester. Well, uh, the first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how did you get your job? AKA, how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? I started my career um, in the corporate realm. So I came straight out of college and went to work for 
Diageo, which is Spirits company that owns Johnny Walker and Guinness and Smirnoff and, and those sorts of brands. So I did that for, for about a decade. I started in London, um, then went to Sydney uh, for about four years and then Brazil for two years. And you know, after 10 years, I, my learning curve had kind of tapped out. Um, and I really wanted to go and do something by myself. And uh, it was at that point I was moving back to the States. My wife and I decided to move to San Francisco. I told my boss I was leaving and she said, you know, if your mind's made up, you might want to speak to this guy. He's looking for a business partner. That that turned out to be Ben, who I work with now. And it's really how we met 10 years ago and, and started out on the journey together. So very kind of naive route in, but it, with some twists and turns worked out in the end. Yeah, that's crazy. So Olipop's your first business. It's actually our second. Yeah, so we had a prior venture called OB. Uh, it was in a very similar space. Um, and yeah, very much a version 1.0. I think, you know, we did that together for about three years or so. And then we had two years in between Obi and, and Olipop, you know, kind of reformulating. But yeah, Obi was a classic first venture, lots of learning, made a ton of mistakes and had to do a lot of self-reflection on the back of it as well. So, you know, we, we really look at Olipop as, as kind of a 10-year-old business, even though we're technically only in our, our fifth year um, in the market. So tell me about Obi. I'd love to hear the backstory. You said there was a, a lot of self-reflection. So tell me what can we can we delve a bit deeper? What what happened? Like so, how'd you start that business? Um, did you raise any money? Like talk us through. Yeah. So I remember, um, you know, when I first met Ben, my co-founder, um, we met at a coffee shop in Palo Alto. He had a bag of sodas that he had, you know, hand decanted into glass bottles and and capped himself and i tasted them and they they tasted amazing and um the which was kind of interesting because they were so low in sugar and he just spoke to me for a couple of hours about the gut microbiome and probiotics and i really knew nothing about this area before meeting ben i struggled to read a nutritional label but ben's background is he Grew up eating the standard American diet. Um, he was overweight. And in his teenage years, he made a decision to change his diet. And he lost weight, but he also, his, his mental clarity improved. And he became really interested in the gut-brain connection, so much so that he dropped out of college to teach himself microbiology. And he, he'd been on a kind of five-year journey or so, getting to this point of you know, having a formulation but Obi and, and needed a business partner to help launch it. And so, you know, I got back from this meeting with Ben. Uh, my wife was at home and I think I actually had an offer at the time from a consulting firm in San Francisco. It paid pretty well. It was downtown. My wife was excited that we'd both be earning for the first time and we could meet for lunch. And I got back from this meeting and she looked at me and she said, oh no, you're going to do this thing with this guy, aren't you? And I said, yeah, look, I think this is really interesting. So, um, yeah, we had no, you know, I was, I just moved to the States. I didn't know anything about the retailers here and the environment. I knew a bit about concept development and new product launches through my work for Diageo. Um, and, but I didn't know anything about capital raising, neither the Ben. And so we really had to learn all of that. We, we made a lot of mistakes um, in how we structured things and, 
and and also had to go through a lot of personal growth as well i think you know being an entrepreneur um you require discipline in your decision making it's hard to have that first time around there's just a lot to learn as well you know it's drinking from a fire hose and i really just couldn't learn it quick enough and so you know i find that once you've in in startup i think mistakes as well as or your decisions more accurately compound so you make good decisions and those compound into great outcomes and you know you make a few wrong turns and those compound over time as well to the point where you can find yourself totally boxed in and and that's really where we found ourselves and you know we we got a modest exit and um and left obi and and then kind of rethought through the concept and, and also thought better ways that we could we could launch new products as well in a similar space so before we dive into obi um i'd love to dive a bit deeper you said you made a lot of mistakes what were some of those mistakes some of the partners that we brought in um i think you can undervalue what you've got you know i think we had a great product and great idea and there's lots of people around you saying hey you can't do this without us um this is really difficult you need my expertise and it's kind of true. Um, well, it's true that it's difficult and it's true that, you know, you're going to struggle to do it by yourself, but equally, you know, my experience is that anybody who's telling you that they have the fix for that is, is probably, uh, you know, inaccurate in their assessment. And, um, you know, we just, yeah, we, we relied too much on others and there was stuff that we just had to learn ourselves. So, you know, I went into the second venture with a lot, ironically, a lot more humility and a lot more self-confidence. I think those things are, are linked, to be honest. Um, and believing in in what we had built together and what we, you know, the, the, the concept that we had and what we were capable of doing. And, and so when we came to tough decisions or turns in the road, I think often, you know, startup really, you know, the, the thing that's most important is what you say no to rather than what you say yes. There can be a lot of decisions that can intuitively seem like the right thing to do, but you know, on reflection are, are actually gonna lead you down a bad path. And and it's those ones that are the hardest to say no to. Um, to uh you know, know know those moments when you don't do the obvious thing or the thing that everybody's telling you to do and you take the the contrarian position. So we did less of that first time around and we picked the right moments, I think, second time around to do that. Mm, can you give me an example? Yeah, I think uh, in terms of our expansion, you know, we we launched in, uh, in conventional retail first time around and we had an opportunity to go with a major retailer and, you know, it seemed like a great thing to do because, um, you know, we needed distribution at the time. So... Uh, but actually we were a lot more disciplined second time around about the phasing of how we rolled out. So we, we decided, look, we're going to launch on the West coast first. It's going to be in the natural channel to begin with. If we can't prove that this thing works there, then it makes no sense to go to conventional because that's, that's a harder class of trade to, to make your product work in. Um, so we really should have said no to that distribution and, and worked harder to, uh, find a natural retailer to partner with as an entry point into the category. And, um, but instead we were just kind of grasping at 
you know, whatever we could get our hands on at that point. And it's, it's difficult, you know, it's, um, it's difficult to believe that you can find the right path. Um, you know, you lack the self-confidence. You, you take the thing that, that comes to you first, even if it's suboptimal. Um, and, you know, if you don't have the battle wounds, I think sometimes it's difficult to say no as well because I think, well, everybody's saying this is a great retailer and we probably should do it. And, you know, second time around, we, we learn to say no and, and have you know, confidence in the, in the conviction of our, of our gut instinct. And, and I think our gut instinct also got, got honed over time because we, you know, seen the outcome of, of some of those decisions as well. So how did you end up selling Obi? What happened? Yeah, it was, was a, you know, a modest exit in the end. And, um, there was an incubation partner that we were working with that, that took over the brand. And we parted ways on that and, you know, decided that we wanted to start over and, and really own the thing ourselves. And, you know, we felt like there was better ways to do this as well. You know, differences from Obi to Olipop were, um, you know, with Olipop, we launched in a can rather than a bottle because, um, you know, we felt it was a more cost effective format. It was more convenient, could scale better. We actually went into prebiotics instead of probiotics, which was the focus of our first venture, which was interesting at the time because nobody had really heard of prebiotics. Um, but we were speaking to the leading nutritionists, microbiologists in the space. And what they were telling us is that, you know, where the science was going is it should really focus on the bacteria already in your gut and feeding them rather than putting foreign bacteria into your system. And that's really the, the difference between a prebiotic and a probiotic. Prebiotics are food with a good bacteria already in your gut, and probiotics are additional good bacteria. So, you know, we, we launched with that concept um, because we saw that's where the science was going and, and we wanted to create a product that really helped people. Um, and we thought that was the best way to do it. But investors really rejected that that thesis because it wasn't trending in the market at the time and you know there was only two or three investors that were really willing to back us at that point interesting so uh you end up selling ob you mentioned a couple of times modest exit and then you took a couple years off and you spent time in reflection so when did you start olipop and when did you and Ben decide, oh, yep, we're going to go again? Did you bring some of the old team together, get the gang together? What did that look like? Yeah, I mean, the first thing for me after Obi was rest, to be honest. I was exhausted, um, as I think a lot of first-time founders or entrepreneurs in general are. Um, the the things that have helped me be less exhausted this time, and I, I say the second time around, I've really enjoyed the experience. The first time, I really did not. Um, it was, it was awful to be honest. It was, it was very tiring, super stressful. Um, I realized that there's things I can't control. So that, that's a major thing, kind of giving up control. Um, and, um, you know, understanding that you can work through most things, uh, with, with a growth mindset. Um, and, um, so yeah, the, the first was rest, um, kind of recuperating from that stressful experience. Uh, the second was reflection. Um, you know, I'd come straight out of a corporate career and there's 
elements of that corporate training that were very helpful, but a lot of it was not. I mean, the startup world is very, very different. Um, there's a range of paths open to you that is not the case in a corporate environment. Um, you know, it's, yeah, I was working for a company that operates in, in 180 markets around the world. Huge uh, organization, biggest spirits company globally, down to starting something myself. And, um, you know, I learned a lot from Ben. He had never worked for a large company before and is very entrepreneurial. And I think in some ways there was aspects of what I brought to the table that, that he learned as well. And, and we talked about it together. We, we didn't work very well together on Obi and we had to work that through and chat about it. So that was an element of, you know, introspection for us and some humility there as well. I think my ego really got hammered into shape. You know, I went in, in my early thirties, extremely self-confident into the startup space. I thought I knew a lot of stuff and I, there was a lot of stuff that I didn't realize that I didn't know. And, and, and Obi really taught me those lessons. Um, so I, I came with a lot more humility second time around, which helps with your growth, growth mindset as well. And then, you know, we also looked at the concept and Ben went to Japan for a bit and, and continued studying the gut microbiome and, you know, this is where we, we landed on, uh, the formula, um, you know, Ben worked on that and, and I worked on the positioning and, and packaging. And it was a, you know, relatively long process, a couple of years, we really wanted to get it right. And we said, look, if we're going to do this again, it has to be better than the first time. Um, and we, we definitely must do this better. And, and so we didn't go to market until we were confident that, that was the case. Mm. So tell me about those iterations with Olipop. Like how long did it take to get the formula right? Uh, talk us through that. Yeah, that was really Ben's area. And, you know, Ben reads very widely. Um, you know, he reads academic papers. He reads Eastern and Western, um, you know, nutritional science and medicine. Um, so, you know, what we eventually landed on, and then, you, you know, you have to look at, sourcing of those ingredients and stuff too. So the final formulation has eight different plant-based ingredients in there to support digestive health. Uh, we ultimately ended up doing uh, research with Baylor and Purdue Medical Colleges last year to look at the efficacy of those, of those ingredients. And, you know, it's academic standard research. It's, um, you know, you can't pay these people to invent the results and the, the, the response that came back was fantastic, showing that um, Olipop is uh, improving the, is increasing the diversity of the um, bacteria in the gut, increasing the production of bifidobacterium, which is the main human uh, probiotic present in breast milk, and also increasing the production of short chain fatty acids. So that was really Ben's area. Spent a lot of time on that, um, and I spent a lot of time on the concept and. You know, we spent all of our money on a design agency and, and working through a packaging design that took us about a year to develop. And then I ran, I think about 10 research groups myself across Northern and Southern California, just reaching out to friends and saying, hey, can you get a group of five to 10 people together? We'll buy you dinner um, at your house if we can come and ask you some questions. And we tested everything from the name to the packaging to the liquid. And we saw that the, the packaging concept we developed really did not work. Um, but it, it, it told us what, what we needed to do, which was 
really get back to what this soda category is all about. And that's fun, refreshment, um, color, which indicates, you know, flavor and, and vibrancy. And, and so we, we redesigned two, three months before launch, um, after we'd raised our seed round. So we were working on things right up to the wire for, for launch. Yeah. Wow. So had you placed an order and, and what is an MOQ when it comes to, to kind of beverages? Like how does that all work? And yeah, talk to us about that, man. Cause it sounds like it'd be cost intensive. You got to re- keep this it stuff is, refrigerated. Yeah. Manufacturing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not like tech. Yeah. Manufacturing is it's slow. It's expensive. Um, yeah, it's where we had to raise the initial seed round even to get started because you have to buy the materials and line time and packaging. So, um, we'd certainly done, we'd been approved our, our cans. Um, I'm not sure we printed them at that stage. Um, but the proofing process is quite a long one for cans. Um, you know, we have to go and look at, you know, sign off on, on how the, the, the printed can is coming out. So by the time we changed packaging, we didn't have time to do that process again. So we had to kind of plastic shrink wrap our, uh, our cans for launch, um, which is quite expensive. So, um, yeah, you know, the, you, you're talking about tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars at times, just get started in the food and beverage industry, depending on, you know, beverage is very difficult to produce at small scale. Sometimes if you're, in food and you're, you're making a bar or something like that, you can, you know, start off making it yourself in your kitchen or whatever and, and ship them out. But beverage is very difficult. You, you need to rent line time at a manufacturer and, and that that's expensive. Mm. So uh, it took you about a year to work on the concept all the way to launch. You did sounds like pretty extensive testing, not only on the, just the actual product itself, but the packaging and branding and marketing and the appeal. Um, what was like, how many, like, what, what, how, how you went to a outside manufacturer, right, to produce uh, the product. Um, what was the minimum order quantity for someone just thinking of, of starting a, a beverage company? Like kind of what, like, is it, is it 10,000 drinks? Is it, 20 is it 100,000 how does it work yeah what you'll find is there's different scale of of co-manufacturer and you know the 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 manufacturing partners available to you at small scale are very limited and uh, they tend to not be as technically skilled because you know the, the big guys don't want to produce more volume it doesn't make any sense for them um and What's difficult in the food and beverage industry is that, you know, nine times out of 10, a company will do a first run and then never return. So, you know, these co-manufacturers are not very interested in your first run. Um, you know, they're not, sometimes they're not paying att- much attention to the quality. They, they almost don't expect you to come back um, because it's often the case. So, you know, if you find the right partner, you can produce a relatively low minimum order quantity. I mean, we're talking, you'd still be in the thousands of cases, um, but you know, you could produce say 5,000 cases maybe, which is relatively low order in our space. Um, but you know, it's, it's challenging 
to work at that scale. Um, it's just beverage is not designed to be produced at such a small scale. Um, you know, you look at the most effective manufacturers, Coke, Pepsi, you know, they're churning out literally hundreds of cans or bottles a minute on their lines. That's when they're operating most efficiently. So that'll also impact things like your cost of goods. So, you know, you're looking, you, you'll struggle to make money um, until you're over at least 30 million in revenue, I would say, because it's just very difficult to produce, um, you know, cost effectively at, at that scale. Yeah. So talk to me about launch. You said with OB, you guys launched into retail um, from, from, from the research I've done. Uh, you guys are now in like 7,000 different grocers now, but did you launch into retail this time around or you did direct to consumer? Talk, talk us through that. Yeah, we're now in over 20,000 doors nationally. Um, we're national in Target and Walmart and Whole Foods and Kroger. Um, we started in 24 stores, independent stores in Northern California. And, you know, there's one piece of advice I would have is, is that scale is, is definitely your friend when you're starting out a business because the thing that's really going to eat cash is scale. Um, and it's also very difficult to pivot when you're at scale as well. So if you're in a sophisticated retailer or a large scale retailer, Walmart, for example, there is no wiggle room around, you know, missing an order or not delivering something the way they want it delivered. Independent retailers will give you a lot more wiggle room. You can be out of stock for a week and then go back in stock. Um, you can have a lot more control over that distribution base. And as I say, you're just eating through less cash because you're at lower volume. As soon as you start, you know, once you're in 20,000 doors, we need much bigger uh, manufacturing team. We need bigger sales team. Um, we need our cost of inventory is huge now to keep pace with that. So. We started in 24 stores that expanded to Erewhon in LA and then to Whole Foods and then to um, other retailers on the West Coast. And then from there, we started to go national, but we only went to the next stage once we were confident that it was working at the, at that, at the level we were, we were at. And, and, and by working, I mean, you, you're seeing good rate of sales. So. Often I hear entrepreneurs saying, well, our rate of sales bad, but it's because we couldn't get in a sample in those stores or whatever else it may be. Um, you know, your product needs to be visible on shelf, but if that's the case, then there should be natural turn and demand for your product. Consumers should be finding it, finding a use for it, filling a need state, and then them coming back to repeat purchase. And that was what was happening with, with Olipop. So with ours really sampling the product, which we couldn't because we launched through COVID, um, you know, we're getting very high or healthy rate of sale initially. And we saw that in the independent trade, then we saw it in Whole Foods, and then we tested conventional and we saw it there and we started to expand into other regions and we saw it there as well. So we just kept on going um, as we've seen, you know, as we've developed confidence that, um, you know, it's working at each level because if you end up in a position where you have multiple regions or retailers that aren't working, that that's when you end up hitting the panic button as an entrepreneur because those stores will delist you and uh, you might not get back in uh, and or 
you know, investors will look at your performance and say, this is a brand that does not have legs to it. And so you'll struggle to get investment as well. It's always a, a through line that people project off. So it's much better to be in 24 stores selling amazingly than 100 stores doing the same volume, not selling that well, because people will just project that through line as you scale and say, well, what's the potential of this brand? And it, it, it doesn't look as good at that point. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success you should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in-the-trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. So can you tell us about your philosophy around break one rule and break it hard? Yeah. Um, so I did a lot of innovation in my time at Diageo, which meant launching new, new products. And so that was bringing some new to world products. It was line extending off established brands like Smanoff and Johnny Walker. Um, and I launched tens of different products and we went through a, a gated process at Diageo, which involved you taking the product at each stage to the executive team and they would interrogate it um, and you launch strategy in your PL. And that was extremely useful as you can imagine because you've got experienced executives who are pulling apart your business plan. Um, and I would say of the stuff that I launched, 90% of it did not work either. So um yeah, I got the opportunity to see how things were not working, um, things that you were really excited about and thought would work. And you're like, oh, I see why that didn't work out. Um, and there's only so many different ways that a consumer goods product can go wrong. So if you've seen 10, 20, 30 examples, you start to see patterns in, in what's going wrong and which things are likely to work and which things aren't. One of the big ones, and this came from Sil Seller, who was the global innovation director at the time, um, you know, she really encouraged this idea of break one rule really hard and keep everything else the same. Consumers, where you've got heavy disruption, consumers really struggle to, uh, it could get overwhelming. So they don't know where to place you. They don't know what your product is or what it does. There's odd examples. I mean, maybe you take like the iPhone or something might fall into this category where you deliver, you know, real disruptive innovation. But the in the majority of cases, it's it's quite incremental. You know, you're, you're improving one thing um, and then keeping everything else consistent so the consumer can understand and interpret the benefit of your product. So if you take Olipop, uh, for example. Um, you know, and, and really what's important is to look at the consumer dissatisfaction that you're solving for, the consumer need. Consumers 
really don't have a problem with soda. In fact, people love soda. You know, root beer tastes amazing. Coke tastes amazing. The branding is really cool. People love those brands. They have nostalgic memories. What is their issue? Their issue is it's not good for them. And they keep getting told this in the media. Um, they keep getting warnings about sugar. So if you look at that, if you can keep everything else the same and solve for the problem, um, then you know, you're essentially giving them the perfect product. And so for us, we didn't want to take away from the fun or refreshment of soda, this, the nostalgia, the memories that people have around it. Um, that's why people struggle to make the change from soda to a kale juice or a water. You know, the, you know, if you present that to somebody and say, hey, look, you know, um, here's the nutritional profile of a kale juice and of a can of Coke. And, you know, you can see clearly which one's better for you. You choose, uh, but you're an idiot if you pick if you pick the Coke. The majority of people are still going to pick Coke because it tastes amazing. It's cheap. It's, you know, in their repertoire already. Um, you know, all of these all of these reasons that we know that that behavior change is difficult. So, you know, the less you're acquiring behavior change from people, the easier it is to get them to switch. And so for us, we said, look, this is, you love soda, we love soda too. Um, we've just made it better for you by changing the ingredients. And we don't hit people over the head with that. We don't lecture them about prebiotics and gut health. Um, we say, look, here's enough information that this is credible for you. If you want more, you can get it. It's on our website and you can dig deeper. And if you don't, if you simply just want to enjoy soda and not have to worry about the long-term impact on your body, then that's totally fine as well. And, you know, there's a number of examples that we looked at at the time, say Beyond Meat, Seedlip in non-alk spirits. Um, I think Halo Top is a very good example in, in ice cream as well. You know, if you look at Halo Top, they weren't the first low-calorie ice cream, but I think they were the first to understand that ice cream is about indulgence. And so if you don't do indulgence, then it doesn't matter if you've got three calories or 3,000 calories, nobody is going to drink that product. Uh, nobody's going to eat that product. So, you know, that's where they tell you to eat to the bottom of the top. It's indulgent. The packaging is gold. The flavors uh, sound delicious. Um, you know, ultimately, it's lower calorie, but they deliver very heavily on indulgence. The fact at times they outperform the category leader on indulgence, like Ben and Jerry's is not telling you to eat to the bottom of the tub. Um, and, you know, for us, it's really important to understand the nature of the category that we're in. It's soda, it's refreshment, it's fun, it's nostalgia. And, you know, that's our primary goal is to deliver on that. And then the rule that we broke really hard was ingredients. And we said, hey, we haven't just like reduced the sugar a little bit. You know, we cut the sugar by, you know, from 40 grams out of two. And then we've added in what essentially is kind of like a high-end supplement into this drink that has university standard research behind it showing how this improves your gut health. Um, and that's a massive departure from the ingredients you would find in traditional soda. But ultimately, when you look at the product to consume it, it doesn't look that different. It's quite familiar to them. And that's reassuring for people. They don't want these things to be complicated. Mm. Yeah, what you just shared is just basically like a masterclass in differentiation <laughs> and product iteration. So, yeah, I think that's really clever. I love that that concept around how you've looked at product development and you've just gone hard on breaking one rule. Um, 
So I have to ask, uh, when it comes to, I guess, ambassadors for the brand, uh, you, you guys have done incredibly well. You've got people like Camilla Cabello, Gwyneth Paltrow, the list of other celebrities goes on. How did you do that? And when did you start doing that? And then talk us through, you got any cool stories there? Yeah, I mean, I think the, given you have a lot of founders listening to the to the podcast as well, I'd say celebrity is very overvalued in terms of what it can do for your brand. It, I'd say everything is overvalued. Ultimately, whether your brand is, and this should be reassuring, whether your brand and company is successful or not really comes down to you and your immediate team. It's not going to be the consultants you have working for you or, you know, um, and so I'd say that straight out the gates. Um, all of these things can help for sure, but that I don't, I wouldn't say they're defining. Um, so never be afraid to walk away from, from anything that, that feels uncomfortable to you. Um, never let anybody oversell that what they're going to deliver versus what you're going to do with the brand. But that being said, um, there's an, there's a, uh, a saying from John Hegarty from BBH that always stuck with me, which is do interesting things and interesting things will happen to you. Um, I think that's really, we found that for sure. Um, we started off with a very interesting product. I mean, it's fantastic. What Ben developed It's a very unique thing. Um, we saw value in that we held, the value in that and and you know saw the value in ourselves as we went to market uh with humility um and other people were attracted to what we were doing because it was interesting you know so everything from the minions partnership that we did came at us organically we, we have people reaching out a lot um i mean when universal reached out to us for minions you know, we said to them, look, this would be great, but you realize we're a small company. <laughs> like we're not Coke. Um, and you know, they said, look, we understand. We just think it's really cool what you guys are doing. And we, we would love to partner with your brand. And all the celebrities that have come in have a, have an authentic connection with the brand. So Camilla Cabello, we got put in touch with her because she was drinking the product herself. She, I think she was picture drinking at Erewhon and you know, we got put in touch and we spoke about it. And she spoke really passionately about, um, you know, her upbringing in a Hispanic community and the, the impact that she'd seen of soda on that community and how committed she was to doing something about that and, and was really interested to partner with us. So, you know, it was very organic and authentic. And so, you know, getting money from celebrities is, is great. I mean, getting money from anywhere is great, to be honest. Um, but what is really interesting and difficult is finding that sort of authentic link up. And I think when you do, that's when it, it gets, you know, that, that's when it starts to have impact. Otherwise, you know, if a celebrity is just endorsing it because they've been paid to do so, then consumers see that now and they, it, it doesn't really resonate too much. So, you know, we've actually just shot and produced an ad with, uh, Camilla and, um, you know, we're about to launch that in May and we're super excited for it. And I think it, it really resonates with her and, and resonates with us because we've, we've thought that through together and where the overlap is for her brand and what she's trying to do and, and what we're trying to do as well. Yeah. I think, um, when it comes to working with thought leaders at any capacity, it can be, if you align them with your brand, 
it can be a really strong way to build trust, um, uh, even from a consumer's mind, from association, even if it is paid or not. It's interesting to hear that that you don't believe that it's a, it's as strong as it used to be as a trust builder. Yeah, I mean, I think you know it's it's always exciting when a celebrity gets involved, when somebody important or famous you know shows interest in what you're doing. It can be extremely validating, you know, because I've sat there in a room in my bedroom working on something, and all of a sudden, um, you know, when Paltrow and Camila Cabello were interested in it, and you know, I, I think having humility also keeps that in perspective as well that. Um, you know, your ego doesn't run away with you. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, you know, really I could count on one hand, I think the times that celebrities have really materially impacted the trajectory of a brand's growth. Um, and it's a difficult thing to pull off, you know, uh, majority of instances, you know, the celebrity partnership really doesn't do too much at all. So one of the areas that we found, you know, we started on Instagram when we launched, that was about five years ago and Instagram was huge for us. And we just built a community of people that, you know, really loved the product and just organically shared around it. And now TikTok is, is massive for us. And, you know, we, we have a platform that allows our consumers to get paid for sharing about the brand, um, organically. Um, and, you know, we partner again with people pretty authentically around what we're doing. And I think it's an easy, it's an easy brand, uh, in that space. A, because people genuinely are constantly telling me, you know, this product really solves a problem for me, you know, and so they can talk about it. I think beverage as a category is, is an interesting one. It's quite sticky and soda is so emotionally resonant for people that, um, you know, there's a lot of cultural, cultural references, uh, to talk about with it, which as a marketer makes it a really, really interesting category to be in. That's, it gets harder dependent on the category that you're in and the brand. If we're in a more commoditized space, that gets trickier, but you know, Coca Pepsi is some of the most iconic brands in consumer goods. Soda is one of the most highly engaged categories so we really aim to leverage that you know to our, to our advantage yeah thank you for sharing so um really enjoying this conversation david but we have to work towards wrapping up i've got a couple more questions um the first one is we've asked someone from our community um and they submitted a ton of questions and we, was, we boiled it down to one and this is from lauren uh she asked what was your marketing plan at the beginning and how did you roll it out and educate consumers was there a big marketing budget from the get-go that's a great question um their answer is no um so i would yeah I, i think it's very and i say this as a marketer like that's what i did for most of my career was brand marketing um and I would really recommend against doing marketing straight out of the gate. Um, your product has, you know, as I said earlier, your, your product really has to stand on its own two legs. And what you should be figuring out initially is your concept. You should be figuring out product market fit. So, you know, say I ran consumer groups myself. I've, I have some experience in that. I've done it before, but I think anybody can do it where 
you know, you just take your product to a group and listen to what people say. That, um, that qualitative feedback at small scale can be very, very helpful. I think after you've spoken to 20 to 30 people, you're going to start to hear patterns in what they're saying and try and get different people, you know, different group and see where the patterns are. And so you, your first task is really just to find your product market fit, work on your concept. And so that might mean you might need to make a change in your packaging or the way that you're positioning your concept. Um, you know, you might want to do some, you know, uh, social media advertising to see how people resonate with a certain message and, you know, it should all be kind of testing, but really I think the advantage for uh food and beverage brand is you can go in a store and people walk into stores every day looking for products, particularly if you go into the right stores, which is, you know, independent natural retail is, is a really great place to do this. Partners like Whole Foods and Sprouts are great as well because people are, are looking for new products there. Um, you know, if you're in, if you're in the natural food and beverage space. So, you know, just observe initially. Don't waste your money on marketing straight out the gate. It's a really good way to burn through capital. You're going to need that money for, um, inventory and, you know, if the production run goes wrong and to hire some people and, you know, keep on top of your financial data and stuff. And, you know, and then we started to spend money once we were confident that we had product market fit. And we had the opportunity through COVID to spend on digital marketing because the cost of inventory was very low and we could see the return on that. So, so we actually built a, um, we built a, you know, reasonably sizable D2C business in that time. Um, but the, you know, initially I would say marketing is very, very easy. It's, it's around the concept. There's not a lot you can do. It's sort of sampling and, and then I would think about anything that you do outside of that, do something exceptional that really stands out and, and, and be disciplined about only doing that. Um, an example that we did in our first year in business, um, which I would caveat that we had raised, you know, a, a reasonable amount of capital by that time. So we were on a, a fast growth curve. Um, but. We did a pop-up at Grand Central Market in LA and we took over a store there for two weeks. Um, this was our, you know, our first full year in business. And, um, you know, we, it, it was a huge thing that we ran ourselves. We probably spent over a hundred thousand dollars on it, which was a large sum of money for us at the time. Um, but it was something that was really exceptional that, you know, made our investors believe in what we were doing. It created buzz in, Amongst consumers, it created belief in our team as well. And, um, you know, I always tell our team, I say, look, 90% of marketing is just ignored anyway. So if you're putting out something that is average or that you don't think is exceptional, don't bother because it's just going to get ignored anyway. Just stop it and use the time, the energy and the resource to invest in something truly exceptional that actually has a chance of getting noticed. And, um, you know, when you're going by that mantra, you save yourself a ton of time as a startup brand. So I say the early stage is very easy. As we've gone past, you know, $100 million in revenue, we've now started to look at how do we build an emotionally resonant brand positioning. And that, that's been a big exercise, but that's, you know, at a much, much larger scale um, than we were at 
you know, two, three years ago. So I'd say in those early stages, keep your powder dry, you know, basic sampling and stuff is good. But I think, you know, I, I see people spending too much time and energy and money on, on marketing in the very early stages of their business. Thank you for sharing. Um, so we're going to move to the hot seat round now. First one is what Olipop flavor do you enjoy the most? For me, I always go to vintage cola. I remember, you know, drinking um, cold cans of Coke out the can machine at lunchtime after playing soccer, and it's a great memory, and I, I love being able to drink a, a cola every day now. Where does your dollar go furthest in your business? People probably, yeah, I mean, there's nothing, no, no money is better spent than, a, than an exceptional hire. What habit makes you a better leader? Self-care, I would say. Like that's something I learned from my first venture. I didn't look after myself properly. I didn't look after my mental health. Um, you, you simply cannot function on that basis. So um, I've got a lot more discipline around that. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? And this is your last question. I mean, there's so many interesting people. I love listening to how I built this. Um, and here, every entrepreneur's story is different. Um, you know, since I moved to Atlanta, there's a brand here called Slutty Vegan, which is a, you know, a, a chain of vegan restaurants, which just the brand is so much fun. And the founder there, Pinky Cole, I haven't had a chance to meet yet, but I'd be really interested to, to chat to her. Um, yeah, I love that brand and um, what they're doing is, is super fascinating. So, so many people, but there's one that's top of mind for me right now. Awesome. Well, look, David. Uh, we will wrap there, but I was going to say thank you so much for taking the time to share with our community. Congratulations on all your success with Olipop. It's, uh, it's incredible what you guys are doing. And, uh, yeah, I really appreciate your openness, honesty, and uh, just sharing your experience with our community. Thank you so much. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview as you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.